If you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. While you're doing that, I feel... <laughs> last time that I, that I had the opportunity to preach, I made comment about uh, my newfound interest in chess. And I feel like I should give you an update because... Since, that, since I made that comment after the service, uh, both Shankar and Matt Lawson came up to me afterwards and they said, Hey, you like chess? We love chess. Let's play. They have destroyed me. <laughs> I, and I, you might be thinking that it's like slightly... <laughs> Matt has beat me eight times. Shankar has beat me 15 times. <laughs> so I have chosen my illustrations carefully. Uh, I'm thankful to be here. I've been given the joyful task of walking us through Paul's conclusion of the book, or perhaps the letter of Galatians. It's been a dizzying, heavy book. We've been walking through it for about four months. We've heard from four different preachers, and we've had a couple holidays in between. And so I think that since we're concluding today, I think that it would be helpful before we even read Paul's conclusion that we consider where we've come. So, so to summarize, the book of Galatians is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to a group of churches in the region of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. It's a letter that is born not just out of common interest, but out of a unique crisis, a historical crisis. And in this letter, Paul sets out to define what the gospel is. It's a crisis that there's a group of people called the Judaizers, and they were persuading the early churches in Galatia that in order to be justified before God, you had to still be circumcised and to keep the Mosaic law. Another way to put this is the Judaizers were arguing that by rule-keeping, the human heart could actually achieve enough righteousness to justify itself before God. Apparently, this argument had some sway because it appears that many of the churches in the region of Galatia were buying into this. And apparently, Paul had heard of this. And so he was compelled to take up his pen and write against this. And it's interesting that Paul is the one who wrote against this because you'll remember that Paul was a Jew. And perhaps, in fact, even just a few years, maybe a decade or so before this, Paul was considered to be the model Jew. These Judaizers may have even considered him to be a hero. They would have followed him on Twitter. He was the guy. He was the Jew of the Jews. So as we read Galatians, we can't fail to remember that Paul is saying, look, I used to buy into this too, but I've been changed. I used to buy into this too, but I've been changed. And as we come to chapter 2, we see how Paul gives us some of his story, how he came to faith and how he was later validated as an apostle. And as we continue on, we see that Paul absolutely goes off and in a whirlwind of Pauline brilliance, he argues with great clarity and makes a rock-solid case for the gospel of Jesus Christ that man is justified by faith as being the only true gospel. 
The Jew of Jews systematically deconstructs his old Jewish faith and builds a case from the Jewish scriptures that salvation comes not from obeying the law, but by faith in Christ. In other words, Paul's case is that there is no amount of external obedience or no amount of behavioral modification that can make man right with God. For all those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Man's only hope for peace with God is justification by faith. And then in chapter 5, Paul moves on and begins to explain how the gospel works itself out in the everyday parts of our life. He argues that faith, true faith, works itself out in love. And that freedom from sin does not come from a do-good, try-harder sentimentality, but rather by walking in the Spirit who now dwells in us. This is a life of complete freedom and leads, to comp- and leads to peace with God and peace with man. So, that's Galatians 1, 6-10. And what's interesting is that now that we come to our text, it's a little bit awkward of a transition. Because it seems like it should stop here. But it doesn't. Will you look in your copy of God's Word and read with me Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18? See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Does any of this sound familiar? If... uh, If you've been reading in Galatians, perhaps you've been reading it in your personal time, or if you've been listening carefully, it would sound like Paul's being a little bit repetitive, maybe almost even rambling. So far, Paul has been keeping with his Pauline pattern, which is common in most of his epistles, where he moves from doctrine, strong, biblical, gospel-centered doctrine, to application. Doctrine leads to right practice in life. And so it feels like the book could end in verse 10, but it doesn't. Let me try to summarize what we, what we just saw in Paul's conclusion. In, verses, in verse 11, apparently Paul is concluding with some sense of urgency, and it sweeps back over him because he actually takes the pen from his scribe and sits down and with his own hand makes this final concluding point. And he concludes like this, The Judaizers who, by the way, boast in the law and their ability to keep the law, but they don't even keep it. 
Well, they are the ones who want you to be circumcised. This is a classic case of do as I say, not as I do. And their motives were even worse. They were imposing circumcision on the Galatians in order that they, may, they themselves may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ, and also so that they can boast in the Galatians' conversion. In verse 14, Paul says emphatically, no way. They may put their confidence in the flesh, and I get that. I used to do that, but not anymore. Absolutely not. I used to boast in those same things, but now my boast is in Christ. Verse 15, he goes on to say, It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. All that matters is that you are created new. And then in in conclusion, he says, For all of us who have given up trusting and rule-keeping, we live by new rule. Justification by faith. And it's because of that we can live at peace with God and peace with man. It's It's a beautiful theme, isn't it? It's beautiful. But Paul's already said it like several times. Why is he saying it again? He's basically restated the whole argument of Galatians. Is, is Paul disorganized? Is he rambling? Is he just trying to be really clear? If so, why not just repeat his main idea, justification by faith? Why grab a pen from the scribe and come back around and land another blow on the Judaizers and repeat it? I think that the repetitive urgency we see in Paul's conclusion reveals his heart. And he believes the churches are in danger. He believes that the churches are in danger. Paul is convinced that the churches in Galatia were in danger of losing the gospel. Remember verse 1 or verse 6 in chapter 1? He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Christ and are turning to a different gospel. To Paul, the whole gospel is at stake. Yes, Paul is urgent. Yes, Paul is repetitive. The whole gospel is at stake. The gospel was at risk because the churches in Galatia were buying into the single most destructive gospel counterfeit that has ever plagued the church. And it's a really important connection for us as 21st century readers to make. Now, maybe, you, maybe you're sitting here and you're listening to Galatians and you're hearing all this about the Mosaic Law and the covenants and circumcision. And maybe you're thinking, okay, look, circumcision, the Mosaic Law, no thanks. <laughs> not my temptation. If there's a false gospel, that's not the one that I'm intrigued by. I've never met a Judaizer. I didn't even know the word until November, right? I don't think that circumcision or dietary laws have anything to do with my eternal destiny. In fact, let me just say, if I walk into a Christian growth group next week and my teacher says, snip, snip, no barbecue, I'm grabbing a donut and I'm out the door, right? How do the dangers of the Galatian churches, how do the dangers that the Galatians face relate to me at all? I think it's a fair question, but here's the deal. The sin that it was at the heart of the Judaizers is deeply rooted in our hearts. In fact, it's at the very heart of all of humanity, and that's the sin of pride. 
independence, self-sufficiency, freedom. I am the master of my life. I am the captain of my own ship. You see, Paul knows that we're hardwired for works-based righteousness. It's our default mode. We love it. Because when we are the ones making ourselves right, that means we're the ones able to clean ourselves up. We get our acts together. And why do we love that? If I can fix myself, who gets the credit? If I save myself, who is my Savior? Me. The Savior always gets the glory. And we love glory. The very essence of all human sin is that we aspire to the position of God and that we crave all the glory that He has said rightfully, Mine. Deep within our broken hearts is a virus, a craving, a longing, an obsession to be worshipped, to be validated, a craving to be made much of, a longing for attention and glory and praise. It's the temptation that ravaged the Judaizers, and it's the temptation that crept into the Galatian church. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those infomercials for an exercise program on TV, right? Haley and I get a huge kick out of these. My favorite's the shake weight, right? These, uh, what's their primary marketing technique? They, they give these testimonies and they, they show pictures. They show these before and after pictures, right? You see them all the time. Some of, some of the commercials show like scrolling thousands of before and after pictures. These fat guys who look ripped, right? Here's what my life was like before P90X. Here's what my life is like after P90X. Here's the proof. You know, that's, that's in a sense what Paul's doing in this conclusion. And so I want to conclude Galatians by considering some before and after shots. Here's life before the gospel. Here's life after the gospel. Paul is the perfect guy to do this. He was the fattest of the fat guys. He was the worst offender. Paul, the former Judaizer, is saying, this is who I used to be. Look what God has done. And this is his selling point. For those who have been newly created, the cross undoes our longing to make much of ourselves and frees us to make much of Christ. For those of us who have been newly created, the gospel frees us up from the longing to make much of ourselves and then frees us to, get, to make much of Christ. So if you'll consider with me, let's look at five before and after shots. Five before and after shots of what it is like to be justified by faith. The first one, if you look down, let's start in verse 15, is that I used to be dead, but now I'm alive. I used to be dead, but now I'm alive. Look at verse 15. Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. A new creation. I'll never forget when the reality of Ephesians chapter 2 struck me really for the first time. And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. We read it this morning. Did you hear it? We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. What's it mean to be dead? Lifeless, unresponsive, not spiritually sick, not spiritually disabled, dead. 
Now, we weren't dead in the sense that we couldn't sin. We were dead in the sense that we couldn't and we wouldn't see and Savior God as beautiful. Our hearts were hard and unresponsive like a stone. We hated light. We loved darkness. We were willing slaves to Satan and had no desire to change. We were dead. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be, what, born again. Born again. What a strange, what an interesting phrase. Now think, think about the progression here. When God created man, what did he do? He breathed life into him. When God created man, he gave him life. And then man lived in harmony with his creator and his fellow man. But then the story tells us, the scriptures tell us, that sin entered. And Romans helps us understand the way this progression continued. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So we went from life to death to life. This is the reality that Paul is building Galatians on. He says in, ver- in chapter 2, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The scriptures teach us that we die through Christ and are born again through His resurrection. Our dead lungs fill with breath. The scales fall from our eyes. And it's not just that our old hearts beat again. The Scriptures, as we read this morning, the Scriptures say that we are given new hearts. Totally new hearts. And yes, they have life. God removes our hardest stones from our flesh and gives us hearts, real hearts, spiritual hearts of flesh. God puts a new spirit in us. He's breathing us, breathing into us again. And now we are united with Christ. Have you ever been around those Christians who seem to be really excited about the gospel? Do you know any of those? Week in and week out, they seem to just talk about the gospel differently, as if it's new and exciting and fresh each day. Do you know any of those? Here's the difference that those folks have. They don't just profess, but they understand the reality that they were dead. When they look into their hearts, they continually see the remnants of the fact that their hearts are broken, that their hearts are stone. And here's the clincher. You will never get excited about the fullness of God's love until you see it in light of your former deadness. You're never going to get excited about God's love until you realize that you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. You'll never truly cherish the reality that God made us alive in Christ until we understand that we were dead. 
I want everyone to look at me and listen really closely. If you don't feel some sense of horror over your sin, if you don't actually identify with this declaration that you were dead in your sins, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. You cannot believe and repent of your sin if you don't confess that you're a sinner. You cannot have saving faith. The blood of Christ has no value for you. It hasn't been applied to your sin because you don't actually believe that your sin yields damnation. Or perhaps you've bought into the lie that the Judaizers peddled 2,000 years ago and believe that you're not that bad. If you don't look on the cross and identify with it, as a condemnation of your sin, then Christ is not your Savior, and you cannot be saved. For we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you have been saved. So I used to be dead, but now I'm alive. But that's only the first before and after picture. Here's the second. I used to boast in myself, but now I boast in Christ. Look at verse 14. Paul says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Boasting is a, is a word that Paul and many biblical authors use frequently. And in the scriptures, boasting quite simply means to have a deep and often public confidence in something. We all glory in something. We all are proud of something. We all boast in something. Boasting is our confident expression of delight and admiration to other people. It's to find joy in something. It's an overflow of adoration and praise. When we delight in something, what do we do? We're eager to display it to others. We naturally want other people to share in our delight because it enhances our pleasure of our object of joy. How different would the Super Bowl be if only one person was there, right? It's a, it's a collective enjoyment of something. Our delight isn't complete until it is shared. When we boast, we're commending something to others saying, look, this is my great delight. Look with me. If you look, you'll see it. It's beautiful. You'll love it too. Boasting is holding something out and saying, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? This is how Paul seems to understand boasting in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you'll flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, let's, let's look at this together. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 27. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says this, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that is written, and he's quoting here, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I think this text is helpful because it teaches us something really important about boasting. And that's that there are two ways to boast. Did you see it? There's two ways to boast. In verse 29 we read, So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And then two verses later, in verse 31, Paul says, So let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, so which is it? Are we to boast or are we not to boast? Well, this is a really important biblical principle for us because we see that boasting is actually by itself a neutral word. Boasting is not wrong. It's not morally charged until we find the object of one's boasting. It's the object of one's boasting that displays the fruit of the heart. What we boast in is remarkably revealing If you know a man's boast, you know everything about him. So the question is not, do we boast? We all boast. The question, and the question of the Bible is, what do we boast in? Jeremiah chapter 9, two of my favorite verses. We, We read this and we see this principle quite clearly. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands me and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. God is infinitely concerned with the object of our boasting. Because what we boast in reveals what we delight in. And what we delight in reveals what our hearts treasure. And what our hearts treasure reveal what we worship. Did you follow that progression? What we boast in reveals what we delight in. What we delight in reveals what our hearts treasure. And what our hearts treasure reveal what we worship. So it's real simple. There's two ways to boast. One we call idolatry, and the other we call worship. Idolatry is when we place our confidence, or another word you may be familiar with is our faith, in something that is not ultimate. Idolatry is when we take glory, glory that is rightfully God's, and give it to something or to someone else. And because our hearts are broken and naturally bent inwards, we tend to find qualities about ourselves that we boast in. Think of Jeremiah chapter 9. Are you wise or accomplished in the ways of the world? Do you have degrees or position or skills or knowledge or talent? Do not boast in your wisdom. Let not your wisdom make you a fool. Consider what you do not know. I love it in Job when God says to Job, (laughs) 
Have you, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you seen how the goats give birth? And he goes on for chapters. There's so much that we do not know. Are you mighty? Are you strong? Are you fast? Are you powerful? Are you young? Do not boast in your might. Consider this. It doesn't matter how many weights you lift or how many miles you run or how, much, how many vitamins you take or how much spinach you eat. Your body is going to decay. Your toned arms, your abs, they're all going to droop and your body is going to betray you. You're going to die. Maybe today. Maybe not. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe next year. If not next year, maybe the next year. If not next year, then the next decade. All of us, those of us who are in this room in our lifetime, saw an ushering of a new, uh, of a new century. None of us are going to see the next one. We're all going to be gone. Are you rich? Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Don't place your hopes in the uncertainty of riches. How many of us have seen the equity of our homes drop 30% in the last five years? How many of us have watched our retirement evaporate and then in horror watch as the stock market came back up and we were on the sidelines? There's no insurance product There's no slick diversification strategy that can safeguard your riches, especially not from the grave. Don't get me wrong. Go get some degrees, get you some abs, eat some spinach, make some money. All these things are good. They're gifts from God, but place no confidence in them. They will fail you. They're going to fail you. Rather, when we keep in full view that we were dead in our trespasses, but that through Christ's work on the cross and through His resurrection from the dead, we've been made new creatures, by very definition, we have replaced our boasting. We used to place our hope, our confidence, our faith, and all sorts of other things, foolishly thinking that they can satisfy us, or even perhaps that they could justify us. But to us, the reality of our own spiritual deadness changed everything. What can a dead guy bring to the table? Nothing. What can a dead guy contribute to his salvation? Nothing. What can a dead guy have to boast in? Nothing. We understand that everything good in us, every gift, every talent, every ability, every blessing, was purchased for us by God through Christ on the cross. That is our boast. That is our hope. And that is our confidence. So, I used to boast in myself, but now, since I've been justified by faith, I boast in Christ. This marvelous transformation of freedom is closely linked to another change that Paul teases out in this text. So we have another before and after picture. I used to crave the approval of man, but now I long that Christ be exalted. I used to crave the approval of man, but now I long that Christ be exalted. 
Look down in verse 12. Paul says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So why did the Judaizers want the Galatians to be circumcised? So they could put up a good showing in the flesh. What's, it, what's that mean? A, show, a good showing in the flesh? Well, they wanted to look good. Quite simply, they wanted their peers to look on them with approval and admiration and respect. They were eager, so eager in fact, for the approval of their fellow men that they were actively engaged in the enterprise of, com- of convincing an entire region to add circumcision to their faith. You see this in verse 13 where Paul quite graphically in a uh, unique play on words that only Paul would get away with says, they just want to boast in your flesh. Here's how this works. When we fail to rightfully fear and honor God, that fear and that honor that were meant for God default to something else. When we fail to honor God as we should, that honor defaults to something else. We marginalize God and we elevate ourselves to His rightful position of worship. And there we worship ourselves very effectively. But here's the problem. We all live with ourselves. We all live with ourselves. We see our failures. We see our insecurities day after day after day. And our failures disqualify us. Failures just aren't fitting for an object of worship. And so now that we've set ourselves up as gods and we realize that we're not very good gods, we have an identity crisis. And when mankind fails to anchor our identity in the fact that we were created in the image of God and that all of our identity is found in God, we start looking for a whole new identity. And we don't look to God, we look to something else. Normally, we begin to look for the approval of others. This is what the scriptures describe as the fear of man. Fear that was initially intended for man to give to God gets turned to someone else. See, we know that we don't actually inspire all. We know that we're not awesome. So our entire lives become focused on garnering the approval and the praise of others. Because if my neighbor praises me, if I can convince my neighbor to think that I'm all-worthy, Maybe I really am. And then all of a sudden, the fear that was due God is given to our peers. Now all of a sudden, when we don't get enough attention from our spouses, we shut down, pout, start slamming cabinets until we get some attention. Or we get easily embarrassed. Or we become chronic liars or we're constantly making excuses, or we're terrified that someone would see us without makeup, or perhaps we do something silly and we're tempted with, what if they don't like my sermon? Now we're glued to social media, hoping to construct for ourselves an identity that we like that other people will worship. This deep insecurity was at the very heart of Judaism. That's why they wanted to make a good showing in the flesh so that they could convince their religious peers that they were actually good law keepers. And what's Paul's response to all this? You remember what he said? 
This is, remember, this is, this, is, this is the Apostle Paul who said in Philippians, if anyone else thinks that he has reasoned for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But now, what's Paul say? Far be it from me that I would boast. The gospel restores the right relationship between God and his people. As a result, all of our other dysfunctions, all of our longing for the approval of others, they're all made right. No longer do we feel empty and in need of half-hearted, misguided worship from others. Once we've identified with the suffering of Christ on the cross, we no longer feel compelled to make a name for ourselves. The gospel restores our identity. The gospel restores our humanity. So now, freed from our pitiful self-worship, what are we going to boast in? We've got to boast in something. Where's our hope? What do we commend to others? What do we delight in? Where is our joy? Now we commend the cross. Because on the cross, we died to the world and all its self-absorbed anxieties. No longer do we feel enslaved to the approval of others. And we are, from, and we are free from the fear of man and now eager to boast in something that is actually praiseworthy. We've been duped before. We know what it's like to praise something that's not worth praise. So now we want to commend something that is actually praiseworthy. We're eager to boast in Christ, eager to lift Him up as the object of our delight so that others would see that He is beautiful. But there's another before and after photo we see in this text. And that's this, I used to anxiously hide my failures from others, but now they're exposed. I used to anxiously hide my failures from others, but now they're exposed. The Judaizers, the object of, uh, or the occasion of the book of Galatians that Paul's constantly railing on, they built their whole life on their supposed ability to successfully keep the law. But what's this text say? They weren't even good at it. They weren't even good at it. Think, just think of the hypocrisy. They were demanding that the Galatian Christians conform to their mosaic standard of morality. In verse 13 we see, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. The Judaizers didn't even live up to their own standards. The standards that they put all their hope in. So what did they do? They tried to cover it up. They tried to cover their shame by demanding that others keep their law. How, how twisted is this? I mean, do you see the hypocrisy? Humans differ to some degree in matters of our conscience. But everyone, all of us, have some standard of expectation. Some set of expectations that we have for ourselves. And what happens is when we don't live up to our own standards, we do this constantly. And every time without fail, 
all of us in, in our own flesh set out to anxiously hide in our shame our failures. My own hypocrisy has uh, been recently exposed here. Um, as a fairly new resident of the state of North Carolina, I saw all these signs that said, do not text and drive. Yeah. Uh, I think it's an excellent law, right? I, I don't really think that's an excellent billboard. Have you seen the billboard that says stupid, the one who texts and drives? I don't think that's an excellent billboard, but I think it's an excellent law. And I've really tried to obey it. And I, I mean, really, I usually do. And I, I'm thankful for a wife who is extremely effective in reminding me. Um, sometimes she'll text me, do not text and drive. Um, but it's funny because I noticed that one of the things that really burned me up is when I, when I was driving and I would look over and I'd see someone else go drive by me while they're texting. I'd get so frustrated. I'd get so frustrated until I needed to make a text, right? <laughs> That's how it works. And shame on me. We, we tend to have some sort of standard that we want to keep, whether it's big or small, and we don't keep it perfectly. And then we find ourselves pointing to someone else that they don't keep your standard. When we break our own standards, we immediately launch into all these elaborate plans to try to hide and cover our failures. Where are the fig leaves? We use, we use lies or excuses or a promise to convince ourselves that next time we'll try harder. And even more than this, we often point the finger at someone else. It was the woman who gave me this fruit. No, 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 no. The serpent told me that the fruit was good to eat. Or we try to cover it up with some other good thing that we've done. And this, is, this is what the Judaizers did. Like putting lipstick on the pig... They reasoned, I may not have kept the law perfectly, but look, I've, kept, I've had someone else keep the law. I used to anxiously hide my failures, but now the cross of Christ has exposed them. The Bible teaches me that I'm a sinner and that my sin is so bad that the full wrath of God is justly aimed at me. And that Christ, the very Son of God, had to be risen up and publicly crucified where the full wrath of God that I deserved was poured out on Him. When I placed my faith in Christ, I agreed with all that the cross said about me. I agreed that I'm a sinner and that my sin itself is actually so horrible that God Himself had to die in order to spare me from eternal death. When Christ was raised up, part of the message of the cross is, Nathan deserved this. And I agree. I agree. The Scriptures, the Law, the Cross, they all announce in loud unison that I am a horrible sinner and I say, I agree. That is what it means to confess. So if I agree with all that, and if, it's, and if the law and if the cross have publicly condemned me, why would I now be anxious to hide my sin from you? Or why would I be anxious to hide my sin from God? Every failure that you have ever seen in my life, and this is true even for my wife, Every failure that you've ever seen in my life is only the tip of the iceberg or how deep my sin is. 
Because I've placed my faith in Christ and agreed with God about my sin, I don't have any reason to hide anymore. I don't have to hide it from God and pitifully try to cover myself with leaves, but now I can actually run to God. Now let me with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, where I may receive mercy and find grace in my time of need. Now I don't have to hide my sin from others. I don't have to pretend that it's not there. I don't have to point a finger at someone else and get defensive. Now I can, like James, I can confess my sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous man is power and powerful and effective. Now when a brother in Christ comes to me and confronts me in my sin, even if I think he's misguided, Now I can say, thank you. I often struggle with complaining. And what's worse, you're only seeing a little bit. You're only seeing this one instance. In fact, you have no idea how much I've grumbled in my heart. I need a Savior. Thank you. Now when I sin against my wife and I apologize, I don't have to sugarcoat it or hide behind some lame apology. I don't have to say, I'm sorry you misunderstood me. It just really frustrates me and I feel misunderstood. No, 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 no. I can say, baby, I'm sorry I get angry with you. When I don't get what I want, I'm prone to get frustrated. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. This before and after utterly transforms human relationships. Now I'm freed up from craving the approval of others. And now that my sin has been exposed, I'm no longer frantically trying to hide. And all of this paves the way for one final transformation that we see. Because I used to love only myself, and now I'm freed to love others. I didn't notice this in the text until after I had read it about 20 times or so. But if you look in verse 13, Paul says, and we can read it again, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Now we've already, we already know that the Judaizers wanted the Galatians to be circumcised. We've been talking about it for months. but what we And we know that the Jews value circumcision. It's the primary mark of adherence to the law. And much like baptism, it was an outward sign that identified these people as proselytes, as those who now received the blessings of Israel. But look, uh, look why they wanted you to be circumcised. But circumcision for the Judaizers was ultimately about keeping the law as means to gain favor with God. Did you notice what happened? Paul is telling us here why the Judaizers wanted the Galatians to be circumcised. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. The Judaizers don't care about the Galatians at all. They don't care if they actually enjoy the blessings of the covenant. They don't care if the Galatians are right with God. They don't care if they get blessings. All they wanted was glory for themselves. But for us, all this changed. All of this has changed. A few in Galatians chapter 5, and we heard this a few weeks ago. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Sin has made us utterly enslaved to self-love. 
but the cross frees us from that. When we by faith identify with the death of Christ on the cross, we come to recognize that no one has ever loved us so freely, no one has ever sacrificed so much as Christ has on our behalf. You've never been loved like you've been loved in the cross. And for those who have received extravagant love, we naturally become eager givers of extravagant love. And here's what's so incredible. When we're freed from our slavery to self-love and are given a new life, we are now freed up to become lovers of others. We're compelled to look outside of ourselves and find the needs of others and look to meet them. And what can be more loving than commending to someone else what frees them from their self-love? By boasting in the cross by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is unbelievably powerful because now, now that we recognize that no one could possibly sin against us in such a way as to demand more forgiveness than God has given to us. Listen, you will never be called upon to forgive someone more than you have been forgiven in God. Ever. You, you, won't, you won't even come close. You will never be called upon to forgive someone more than you have been forgiven in God. So now there's an infinite fountain of love to drink from. And so we're filled up free to love others. Those who have been forgiven much become those who forgive freely. This is the message of Galatians. That the gospel changes everything. And for those of us who have been justified by faith, we used to be dead, but now we're alive. We used to boast in ourselves, but now we come in Christ. We used to crave the approval of man, but now we crave that others would approve of God. We used to anxiously hide our failures, but now they're exposed and we are at peace with God and with each other. We used to love only ourselves, but now we're free to love others. Galatians is the gospel, and in that we rejoice. For those who have been newly created, the gospel and the cross undo our need to make much of ourselves and reshapes our desires to make much of Christ.